Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Before we get started today, I want to tell you about a cool limited run series that WFAE is putting out. It's called Work It. It's running November 13th to December 18th, and they're having conversations with people about their relationships to their jobs and how those relationships shape their view of the world. It's hosted by TEDx Charlotte organizers Stephanie Hale and Jill Byers, who follow their curiosities underneath the job and the question, what do you do? And into the beautifully complex identities of people we encounter in our everyday lives, from carpet layers to lawyers, barbers to burlesque performers and beyond. Check that out wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Oh... One of the other moms that we're doing a pod with, basically, like, her daughter told her that Archie kicked her in the face today. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot to talk to you about how, like, you can't roughhouse the way you do with your brother with girls. It's all a learning experience. Uh-oh. Oh, that's just my house. Normal stuff. Somebody's crying. Somebody's probably... Settle down! I'm just kidding. Settle down, kids. (laughs) It's time for labor. Labor. Labor, 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 labor. It's labor! The social science on work, women, and motherhood. I'm Amy Westervelt. I'm Elise Hugh. Today's episode is about the idea of absence. Taking a break from your responsibilities to your family. And if I'm elected, I promise you we are going to do way less. Right? Less PTA meetings, less luncheons, less fucking bake sales. Just less bullshit. We need time. Not just vacations, though. We're talking about scheduling something specific, something that researchers call strategic absence. A psychotherapist and social scientist in Australia came up with this term. Her name is Petra Buskins. So what is strategic absence? Basically, it's an approach where you plan periods away from your family as a deliberate strategy to break out of traditional gender roles and expectations. 
Right. And one thing that we've been wondering a lot about is, can this work in a global pandemic? Because I need a freaking absence right now. (laughs) Boy, (laughs) do I. I've been able to sort of do this. And I know, Amy, you have too. Kind of talked about how your planned absences worked before the pandemic. Well, okay. I have to be very honest here and admit that sometimes I would actually completely lie and make up entire conferences that did not exist and then just go to a hotel by myself for three days. (laughs) Well, that's a strategic, I mean, that's strategic. Yes. But there were also times where I, you know, just said I need to get away for a few days and would just, you know, plan it with my husband, especially during times where he was away on business trips a lot. But, you know, even in saying that, I'm like, oh, yeah, like in my mind, it was this sort of like it had to be even it had to be this like bargain that we struck. So I don't know if that's great. Right. Does it need to be a bargain, though? I mean, can strategic absence just happen irrespective of that? Petra's going to talk about all of this and how to do it effectively after this quick break. Petra is a social science researcher at the Australian College of Applied Psychology. Well, hello from California. Hi, Petra. (laughs) Hello. Hello, Elise. Petra, could you start by defining for us what exactly strategic absence is in your view and what the goal of it is? I came up with that term to try to describe what women in my study were doing. Petra was doing a study of women who were doing something deliberate to try to really be strategic and intentional about upending gender norms. And essentially what they were doing was carving out time and space for themselves in order to cultivate their paid work as well as their autonomous identities. So a sense of me time, free time, as well as work time, which I think is interesting for women that they're often bundled into one as a kind of other to their domestic roles. How hard is it to actually carve out that time? And why do you feel like it has to be strategic? I think I called it strategic because it involved negotiation with partners, sometimes ex-partners, sometimes family support. And I think, secondly, I use that term to refer to uh, a kind of practical strategy. So there's a negotiating political piece and there's a practical piece. I was just telling Elise before that I have done this in the past and and have definitely felt like I had to negotiate and, like, make it fair. And sometimes I um, didn't feel like doing that, so I just made up fake business conferences. (laughs) Well, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and I mean, that I guess that taps into the power political piece and the psychological piece too, Amy, that we feel yeah. we have to, it's hard to justify it just in terms of self or work. So, you know, there's kind of got to be these additional explanations. Right. So what drew you to researching this? What made you first start to notice that this was like a thing more than one person was doing, that it was something that needed a name? I think I'm naturally a theorist, not an empirical researcher, but I'm drawn to stories. And so I I came to this out of a kind of theoretical pathway, which is to say I was interested in the emergence of the autonomous or individualized woman. Why is this notion of an autonomous, individualized woman kind of new? Well, I think it was new as a conception for men <laughs> at the end of the 18th century, although, of course, it It traces back to earlier. So what happens in the Enlightenment I think is really interesting because it disengages the individual from 
any kind of pre-existing narrative of who the individual is and then creates a kind of superimposed egalitarianism so that individuals are exchangeable. We can all be um, the same unit in a democratic process, whereas historically what grows organically is hierarchy in kin and community and role and clan and cultural identity. So liberalism comes along and flattens all that out and says that's, that's private business, your religion, your, your culture, that's all private. What's public is this interchangeable, abstract, equal citizen, and that's a historical construction. And all these men said this is universal except it doesn't belong to women or any kind of colonised peoples or, you know, initially even working class, you had to be a property owner. So it's linked to property. Um, and so in that period in, when this concept of the individual was invented and it's historically, um, you know, an, an extraordinary achievement, um, women who were educated at the time and, and who were active feminists said, hey, we want, we want some of that. And I think it's not only that women wanted it, I think women co-created it and, and that's often left out of the picture. Mm. To look back to your question, Amy, I think I was interested theoretically in what this means because the very creation of the category of the individual requires this privatisation of the personal, okay? Now, if you think about that in macro terms, that's religion, that's culture, but it's also that there was a kind of category of person who was in the private sphere and left behind, and that's women as mothers and wives. Women mm. as mothers and wives were constitutively removed from that category. And so <laughs> for women, we have always had to battle across this divide of um, being, you know, wives and mothers in the private sphere who apparently are outside the category of freedom and philosophically were, de were defined that way. And I think what's different from the classical notion, because it's not like women weren't mothers and wives always, back to the ancients, but what's different is we now have this new philosophy that says everyone's equal, but, but you're not. Right. Right, right. Because liberalism was like in the purest idea of it is actually supposed to celebrate our individualism. But then for women, we just got cut out of it is essentially what you're saying? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, so tie this back to strategic absence. So this idea of the woman who doesn't work, we often call it traditional, but in fact it's an artifact of modernity. So I was interested to unpack this notion of the traditional wife at home, which is a sort of 50s myth. Women and, and work were united. For a lot, it took more than a century to get most women to stay at home, separate from paid labour. And, and, you know, that's variegated across class and race. So I was interested in the construction of both the mother who stays as this modern invention of the woman at home who cares for the family only and doesn't engage in paid work, and I was interested in the parallel construction of the mother who leaves and how this suddenly became really fraught for, mm. um, for moderners, for those who uh, with the literary culture, that, that if, if mothers leave, oh, my God, who's there holding the court? because all the men have gone to wage labour. What we see is 40 years of feminism saying women have, have got the double shift. So they don't cease to be the primary person in the home. So I was interested in, well, okay, we know this now and we're still talking about it. We're banging on about it all the time. Pick up the news media. Women are suffering from a double shift. But how do we get out of that? Empirically, I was interested in, well, okay, we know women are suffering from a double shift. What are we going to do about it? What are some commonalities or things that you have found in your research about women who do challenge this notion of a double shift and are living in different ways? 
Okay. So I, I just want to say I only have a very small sample. When I looked into the research on, say, role reversal, a lot of those studies, um, at least the ones in the 90s and early noughties, they actually had to be disbanded. There were so few couples who were genuinely egalitarian. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. There were so few. Look, can we just stop there? The researchers tried to examine and take a deeper look at role reversal where men took on more childcare and domestic duties and women were the ones who took on the more sort of labor uh, outside of the home. And there were so few cases of role reversal that social scientists didn't have large enough sample sizes. <laughs> that is wild. But yeah, but what did you find? I mean, I guess just really quick top lines. What did you learn and did that guide your thinking about strategic absence and how it might work? Because we want to get to the practicals too, how we can, how those of us who are hearing this ep episode and want more strategic absence in our lives might actually do it. So most of the women were knowledge workers and I think that's something important to say because, of course, it's harder to do that, I think, if your work is more practical. Not impossible, but I think different challenges arise. So I had an archaeologist who wanted to go on a dig and she went for three months and had to do a lot of negotiation with her husband and wow. her mother to pick up the tab so she could go on this dig, which she felt was really important for her career. Another woman is a poet and she just needed that kind of insular space that I know I need in order to write, mm. which means not kind of trying to do it with school pick up and drop off and holding all that second shift domestic chores in place, but rather letting go altogether. So one of my central findings was that many of these women were still intensive mothers in Sharon Hayes' sense of that term. However, they, they needed this time and space in order to fully let go of the second shift. And in fact, this is inspiring because I think that's exactly what I'm going to need in order to write a book. Because I've been trying yes. to watch my three small children and I feel stalled, right? Like I just don't have any headspace to do the research and just to do the thinking that sometimes comes about just by not doing anything at all or outwardly right. not appearing like you're doing anything. I think that's critical because it's not only about productivity, it's about what is behind productivity. And we often don't talk about that, certainly under neoliberalism, we're just into the runs on the board, the output. I mean, this was articulated beautifully by the woman in my study who was a poet. She referred to it as allowing the balls to roll, just spontaneous time that was empty that she could fill with inspiration and thoughts and you know, little meandering ideas. And you can't do that when you're framed in this nine to five. And so a big part of it was releasing from the nine to five. Hmm. That's so interesting. Okay. I, I want to ask you about the impact that the pandemic might be having on all of this. I think, you know, we've talked a lot on this show and I'm sure you've read and thought a lot about this, how COVID is sort of reinforcing all of these bad gender roles and, and boundaries. Given all the logistical limits that might make this tough or impossible right now, are there ways that people could do this type of, of strategic absence thing now during COVID? I think that's really tricky because it, it depends on people's individual circumstances, doesn't it? I mean, mm. you know, there, there's that, is there a second home? And that's really, that requires um, a lot of wealth, doesn't it? Right. Most of the women that were in my study would either, you know, stay at a friend's cottage for free or 
um, they were booking an Airbnb or, you know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? mm-hmm. a temporary thing, whereas now certainly in Australia with the lockdown conditions, a lot of people haven't even been able to leave. And I think this holds up a mirror to people's lives, doesn't it? And so it exacerbates the already existing tensions and inequalities by putting a new pressure on. Um, but it's interesting uh, given my orientation that I also feel something else and that is um, that this is uh, an historic pause on the juggernaut of capitalism and that we want to be asking even bigger questions about how we work and why we work and what's important with work. So this is a little bit beyond perhaps my work that you're referring to on strategic absence. I'd be hesitant to refer to the mothering role as bad or in some way intrinsically oppressive. I don't think right, no. wage labour can be intrinsically oppressive. And if we follow David Graeber, who RIP, rest his soul, he talked about bullshit jobs in ways that I think are really compelling. Do we liberate women into bullshit jobs? No. Right. We don't want to do that. And that's the neoliberal <laughs> yeah. lie. And, and so for me, this is this very powerful pause to stop and think about how we're living in terms of the juggernaut of industrial capitalism. To loop back to strategic absence, what I found really interesting and unexpected when I interviewed the mothers was that many of them still wanted to mother quite intensively. You know, so there's been uh, quite a feminist critique of that, and I understand and empathise with that critique, but at the same time, they were saying they actually really like being home with their kids. They just need yeah. time out as well to be creative. So rather than yeah, the industrial right. modernist model of nine to five, which was yeah. invented by and for men with wives at home, it looks to me like women want to do something else, more integral, kind of blending and chopping it all up. And it strikes me, at least the optimistic side of me, as a way to get at some of the dismantling that needs to happen with industrial capitalism, neoliberalism, a lot of the things that we've talked about in the first season of this podcast. So you're sort of bringing it all together in a really profound and hopefully useful way, Petra. And we're so grateful. Yeah. Like, do you want to tell us the name of your new podcast and when it's launching? Oh, yeah. Look, I don't know when it's launching because I'm busy being under lockdown and mothering kids. So <laughs> it's, it's called The Maternal Feminist. And I'm hoping to interview feminist scholars and artists and writers and so on on uh, mothering and feminism and how, I guess, how the two have been historically separated and how to bring them together and be autonomous mothers. I'm really interested in that. And, And also restoring to our understanding of the feminist canon that feminists right right back have been concerned with motherhood. Awesome. Petra, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Elise. And thank you, Amy. All right, y'all. We are rounding out the end of our first season soon, and we want to hear from you before the season is over. So will you send a voice memo of questions you have for us or for the researchers and email it, email your voice memo to team at reasonablevolume.com. That's team at reasonablevolume, spelled out, dot com. Big thanks to our producer on this episode, Audrey No, editor Rachel Swaby, and our mixer, Mark Bush. My name is Elise Hugh. I'm Amy Westervelt. Talk to you next time. And don't forget to rate us, subscribe, and send us those voice memos of questions you want answered. 